Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. And right now, we are continuing our look at the works of James Weldon Johnson, in particular, his autobiography from 1933, Along This Way. Now, despite this book being a little bit, uh, you know, around 500 pages in the Library of America version, it's broken up nicely into four parts. So each corresponding with it, really a different part of Johnson's life and career. And so I'm cheating a little bit with the 100 pages uh, framework. But anyways, it's, you know, there, there's... That's how I'm going to do it in this, for this particular work. So in part three of Along This Way, Johnson talks mostly about his counselor work, his work in the State Department. And he had this job from 1905 until 1912 when he resigned his, his counselor jobs. During, during this period of time, he's very much a, a professional man trying to move up in the bureaucracy, move up in the State Department. He's... For most of his life, until quite late, he was a, you know, really, it's, I guess it's until the Wilson years that he starts to cool on the, on the Republican Party a little bit. I, he doesn't become a full-fledged Democrat by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he's pretty much a loyal Republican at this point in his career. He, anyways, he's very much interested in, in trying to work up the bureaucracy of, of the State Department, the consular services. And he's taken advantage of his skills in Spanish, which I think he was near fluent from a very young age in Spanish. He had certainly had a lot of experience with Spanish-speaking people um, back home. And this is something he reflects on in Autobiography and Ex-Colored Man. So mostly part three is about this council work. Now, it's a very interesting section for at least two reasons. One is I think this is this, this section shows a case for if, if isn't itself a case for it. It suggests that there is a case for writing or thinking about a social history of consular service and diplomatic work. Um, at the very least, if you read part three of Along This Way, you get a sense of how rich and complex and and multifaceted counselor life could be um, just in the sense of the kind of the encounters people had as you know working in the embassies and consulates the complexity of how one's individual values and politics intertwined with the official policy of the United, of, of the government in this case the United States and also just the day-to-day -day social life of diplomats and their wives and families and the people they encountered and, and interacted with. So there's quite a lot going on, and even like just some of the day-to-day -day work and the type of people that Johnson run, ran into on his day-to-day -day basis as a, as a counselor, as a counselor official, I should say, in, in Venezuela first, and then later on it was Nicaragua. And then another reason it's very interesting, this, this section of the book, is because it's really an example of, of someone who later on is going to be a very prominent African-American activist and a very prominent anti-imperial force. Uh, certainly as a leader of the NAACP, he, he comes out pretty harshly against the American occupation of Haiti, which was something he actually supported earlier in his career. And here he's involved with American occupations in Nicaragua. This, this period of time, 1905 to 1912, is a period in which the United States is expanding its imperial sphere of influence throughout Latin America quite aggressively. It's the time period where the Panama Canal was being established. It was a period of time in which there were numerous and some, multiple simultaneous American interventions in Latin American states. Everything, you know, from Haiti to Nicaragua to Mexico and on and on. And as a consular official, Johnson was, you know, basically a servant of those imperial ambitions. And sometimes it's a little bit hard when you read this to know quite what he feels about these policies he's you know but you do get the sense he was, he was basically a loyal administrator and now one reason he resigns from cons consular affairs is because of some of his feelings about these things but uh, it is what it is this is a period of his career when he is a company man it seems but I think just the the, the way we see these these officials interacting with American Empire is fascinating and the fact that 
it's Johnson doing it, who later on will be quite anti-imperial, and he's able to connect imperialism in Latin America and particularly the Caribbean with racism back home. I think is is, is striking, and then the other aspect that's interesting here is just how we see the nuances of life for consular officials and their families. Now, other things going on in Johnson's life during these years. Uh, one is he's writing the autobiography of an ex-colored man. And this takes him a very long time to write and pen and publish and revise. And I think it's like for almost a decade he spends kind of messing around with this text. He also gets married during these years and brings his wife with him on the consular affairs. So that's all also going on in his personal life during these years. Well, so part three is broken up into seven chapters. It's actually the shortest section in Along This Way. Um, the other three sections are all over 100 pages, actually. This one is actually a little bit under 100 pages. So it's a shorter section of the book, but I think it's 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 the section in which I, I when I went into it, I found like this book really does have greater value than I felt at the beginning. At the beginning, I just thought it was such a ponderous autobiography, especially dealing with his earlier years. But at the later second half, I think this novel or this autobiography really takes off and it really becomes a an important work of American literature, or at least of American kind of social history and political thinking and, and you know, and of autobiography because it's it's a pretty outstanding example of a very interesting life. I mean, I think another reason we might want to approach Johnson's autobiography is just he did so much in his life. I mean, if he just was a diplomat, maybe we wouldn't know that much about him. But had he continued on his career, you know, he may have been an important diplomat uh, in, you know, in the early 20th century. But like, for instance, if he had just been a writer of poetry and music, right, we'd have God's trombone and we'd have 50 years, both of which we'd have lift every voice and sing. These are important works on their own. If he had just been a novelist, we'd have Autobiography and Ex-Colored Men, right? Had he just been a political activist and a, a member of the NAACP, he would have been an important figure in that. So he's, he's one of these, you know how they say with like Babe Ruth, had he never picked up a bat, he would have still been, I guess in those days, they, the pitchers all, always batted, no matter where you were. But you know what I mean. Had, had he just been a pitcher, he still would have entered the Hall of Fame, right? I, and that's sort of how I feel about Johnson here, being a very... Uh, just such a diverse person. He excelled at so many things he did. Uh, so he's, he's kind of a renaissance man in this way. So if, if you are just joining us, I do go back and listen to perhaps part one and two of my coverage of Along This Way. Essentially, there those sections are about his education, about his upbringing, his, his background, his childhood friends, his discovery of, of race, something all black children went through at some point in their life, obviously. I guess white people too, but in a very different way. Part two covers his, basically his early career his, as a teacher. Yeah, he was actually a principal of a school in, in Jacksonville. And then his turning his back on that, his experience of racial violence in the South, and his affinity for New York and the time he spends with his brother in New York dealing with like, working on art and working on writing music and writing verse for, for music that his brother Rosamond would then set to music. He was involved with writing operas, librettos for operas. He was involved in writing a lot of music and things like that. So he's doing that in New York. And it's in 1905 that he gets the opportunity to enter consular service. Basically, it's a political appointment, um, but he takes it and he, you know, makes something of it. And he starts to become a, becomes interested in becoming a career diplomat. And that's really the story of part three. It, be, it begins with chapter 21, and we get the narrative of his travel to to Venezuela. He stopped in Caraco for a while, which was a Dutch-speaking area, before he gets to, um, to Puerto Cabello, which is where he is, where he kind of settles down as a consular official. Now, so he was an American consul in Venezuela, in the town, but he was also a consul for Cuba and Panama, and he also had some consular affairs for for France there, and that really had to do with some of the internal politics going on in Venezuela in Venezuela at the time, because at that point there was a new regime coming into the power, the Castro regime, 
Now, no relation, as far as I know, to um, Fidel Castro of Cuba. He was president of Venezuela from 1899 to 1908. Uh, his full name was Jose Kiparano Castro Ruiz. And he was one of a series of strong dictatorial figures who ruled Venezuela for, for much of the 20th century. Um, so that is the Castro that's being referred to um, here. But he had broken off relations with France, and this had kind of meant that he was going to have to deal with certain like, issues for France as well while he was there. So Johnson is struck by the diversity of these South American cities that he visits, he, the, the racial diversity, and he does notice pretty quickly that there's a greater degree of, of at least on the surface, racial equality in, in South America, and just this, the kind of the diversity of it. And he certainly sees this first at, at Curaco, which of course is Dutch speaking, but here's what he writes uh, about Curaco. The mass of the population, which is Negro, speaks Papamento. Indeed, everyone who lives in Curaco knows and uses Partimento. It's not mere Patoy. It's a language, a composite language made up of Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, a little German, and Dutch. It might well serve as a universal medium. It's grammatically constructed, is the language of most of the textbooks used in public schools, and the language in which the newspapers are published and into which a number of books are translated. It is probably for this reason that every Kurakan is a linguist. For them, the differences caused by language hardly exist. A boatman, an old black man paddling me across to my steamer, addressed me in four languages in an effort to discover what was my mother tongue. At the club, I saw four or five men playing a game of pool and was astonished at the lightness to which the conversation was tossed from one language to another, end quote. And he also talks just about how he kind of likes the kind of the life of these cities, which he found very pleasant and relaxing and, and just kind of joyous at times. And it's also right away in chapter 21 that we get the sense that we're really entering into a social history of consular service. And we it's... It's in a lot of subtle things like the gossip of the diplomatic corps, diplomatic workers' wives, for instance. And the, 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 just the vast, vast amount of time that he had to spend in clubs, playing billiards, playing chess, interacting with officials from Venezuela or other consular officials and having to interact with it. And even dealing with people who are like officially or openly anti-American, but since he was a, an official you know, he had to kind of work with them and interact with them. And it, it just makes for a very, very interesting reading as we learn just how many different layers of, of, of life were being lived by these, these um, diplomatic agents. Like at, he talks about how he has to take up hunting at one point just as part of his duties as, a, as an official. And of course, you have all the, the other officials, the other uh, embassy officials and consular officials from from Europe and other countries that are interacting with him in various ways. So I think a lot of what Johnson just had to do was be a social figure. I mean, he later on gets to some of his official duties that he has to do, but a lot of it's just this kind of cultural and social exchange that was taking place. Now, as we enter into chapter 22, we learn that this world he enters in, Venezuela, actually inspires him to be a writer and to go back to writing and to explore himself creatively. So you'd think that this period of his life would be one in which he kind of gives up all that art stuff that he was doing it before and focus down on his diplomatic work. And he does do that. And he does try to become a career man and move his way up the, the hierarchy of the State Department. He also kind of refines an interest in in writing. And this is when he starts writing the autobiography of the next color man, which he had been thinking about before. But he finally starts um, putting on paper and he actually talks about how he gets inspired by Venezuela to be a writer again and we're going to look at a poem in a couple weeks when we finish up with Johnson that's all based on his experiences in the Caribbean I don't I don't think we have anything written while he was in Venezuela but generally we do see kind of an international influence on Johnson's thinking reflected in his poetry and in passages like this quote it was while I was in Venezuela that I had my one and only experience with the line of tradition about poetic inspiration, the tradition of the poet seizing his pen and in fine frenzy taking direction from the spirit hovering above his head. I had come home from a club and with no conscious thought of poetry in my mind, I undressed for bread, bed. When I had finished undressing, I turned on my light and threw open the shutters to my bedroom windows. The open windows emitted enough light from an electric light opposite to the park to enable me to see my way to my room. I got into bed and immediately went to sleep. 
Later in the night, I woke suddenly completely. For some reason, the light of the park had gone out. The room was in impenetrable darkness. And, what, and what, then he goes on and he talks about how he writes a poem called Mother Night and a, a sonnet. Oh, wait, we actually do get this one. This was published in 50 years. So we will look at this exact poem later on. There's a couple couple others that may have been written around this time. Down by the Carib Sea is a multi-part poem, which I think is either from his time in Nicaragua or his time in Venezuela. Another Girl of 15, which seems to be written in the same period of time. So we'll look at these poems in a couple weeks. But it's enough to say that he feels inspired by that. And part of that inspiration then goes into his penning of autobiography of next colored man which at the time he decides he should should publish anonymously um, because partially he wants to i don't know if it's fair to say he was trying to trick the audience but he he thought that if people knew that it was fiction they wouldn't like it and they wouldn't be interested in it that people wanted to hear stories about passing and, and maybe if it's presented as, as real maybe that's got some of that kind of like a little bit of a sex factor to it, a little bit more exciting and scandalous. Um, maybe gets under white people's skin a little bit more. So, but anyways, he thought if if you know, because he obviously couldn't pass. So anyone who knows him and knew of him knew that this couldn't have been about him. So he was really trying to present it as as true to life. And in fact, it is true to life. The character, the ex-colored man, is based on his 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 friend, um, who although the events of that friend's life don't correspond with the character the the fact that he could pass and the and we'll talk about him we'll get we'll get back to him in a little bit actually the same chapter so johnson spends a lot of time going back and forth between washington and venezuela and he talks about how he even became on his trips home part of of roosevelt's because roosevelt's president in, in 1905 becoming part of his so-called black cabinet. And we, I know that term is normally referred to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, but I've never heard it referred to Teddy Roosevelt, but apparently he also had something called a, a black cabinet. Quote, it was made up of a group of colored men who held important federal positions in the capital. At the time, include the Register of the Treasury, the Recorder of Deeds, the District of the, of the, District, the Auditor of the Navy, on and on. Um, Booker T. Washington was chief advisor to the president. And then he says the cabinet no longer exists because Taft stopped appointing so many black people to the important positions, almost down to zero. Oh, eventually it was Hoover that brought it down to zero. So that's something I never heard before. And it's something that might be worth looking into to, to understand more is, is why Roosevelt was appointing so many African-Americans. And then why did subsequent presidents appoint fewer. We, we know that Wilson was a pretty open racist and that, that would account for that. And, but, you know, just, just the, the full story here would be interesting to, to know more about, I think. So we, at this point, we get a little bit of news about D. Now, if you didn't listen to my previous episodes, D is, is how the character is, a, or the, the person, it's not a, it's a real person, but how he's addressed in the text and i don't know why johnson was covering up his name maybe because he was an inspiration for the ex-colored man or maybe there was some personal reasons for that but his name was judson douglas wetmore and he was very light-skinned he could pass as white and and he comes in and out of the story a little bit less in the second half but he's a prominent figure in the first half of the novel uh because he was a childhood friend essentially and knew him in college and throughout the 20s oh no throughout the his 20s, Johnson's 20s, I mean, uh, pretty active in his life. But we get news that he he's marrying a Jewish woman. And we get a little bit of locker room talk here about race and the color line and marriage and all that. So it's, it's, it's worth examining just for that. Um, the tensions involved with interracial marriage at the time. You know, in, in most states, I don't think interracial marriage had yet been... It, I mean, I, I don't know the exact number of states that fully banned interracial marriage. I know a lot of them did, but that's more of like a 20th century phenomenon. But this does seem to be a very legitimate love affair between these two characters. And and Johnson can't help but talk about and, and reflect on Dee's, Wetmore's, but a large number of love affairs he had throughout his life. He seems to be been a little bit girl crazy. We get the description of the woman he, he marries and 
he says, quote, she was tall and slender, but with that breadth of shoulders that presages an Amazonian era in middle life. But middle life to her was a long way off, and I recognized her beauty for what it was in the present. Dee took in the homage I secretly paid her. I could see from the way he smiled that he relished her. So from Johnson's point of view, it was a, a, a serious, meaningful love affair they were into, and, and they do end up getting married. So there's not too much comment in this section on interracial marriage. It's just something I'm thinking about and, and how that color line moved around. And partially maybe because I read Chestnut and Chestnut kept coming back to this issue of interracial relationships and the consequences of that in 19, late 19th century, early 20th century American life. Here it's presented just as, you know, the life of a friend. So maybe maybe that's how we should look at it. And then in the rest of chapter tw 22 is really about General Castro's rule, his style, his health troubles, and how his advisors had to kind of talk him and go to another country for, for some health care he had to receive. But mostly it's about his, the nature of his rule. And if you're interested in what kind of person this General Castro was, his style is really, I mean, he didn't seem to be like, he was an authoritarian figure, certainly. But he liked to have parties. He liked to be to hold balls and he was very much you know very much a public figure and someone who liked to be out in public and and put on a lot of parties that that's the sense we get from johnson's account of castro we even have one whole page just talking about what a good dancer castro was so that that's fun to to examine so chapter 22 is a bit of a mixed bag a lot of personal stuff uh, and then and then a little bit more professional concerns with with reflections on Castro, but it all is about things he experiences. So again, we get a window into the kind of the social life of of diplomats. In chapter twenty three, Johnson relates how he really had a desire to rise in the consular service for a couple of reasons. One is his current job was was rather low ranking, and it meant he had to deal with a lot of basically boring, mundane stuff in in Puerto Caballo. And he the, one of the more funny parts of the book for me was his reflection on actually the, the problems that American citizens abroad will often cause for consular officials. And the reason I, I, I like this is I actually was reading a memoir of a British agent in Thailand in the 20s and 30s who was a consular official there. And he would talk about how these destitute Britons from all over the empire would come. And this is one of the, I guess, the negative consequences of having these huge empires. You had all these people who were British subjects. And so the consular official had to deal with it. So, you know, an Indian subject of the British queen, I guess this would have been after the queen, but, you know, British monarch. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there for a moment. But when one of these people would come to, you know, maybe destitute, no money, no job, no way of getting back. And he had to kind of deal with that and deal with those people. And there was, of course, very clear policies on how much you could give these people and how much money and how much, what kind of help you could offer them. Every time someone got thrown in jail, that was something the consular officials had to deal with. And he kind of complains a little bit here about these American citizens. And he actually calls these beachcombers. Um, who would, you know, these destitute Americans who were all over Latin America. And here, quote, a council is authorized to draw on the treasury of the United States for any necessary amount to aid the destitute seamen to provide with them food, shelter, clothing, medical treatment, and passage back to an American port, if the situation warrants. But he's not allowed a penny for the aid of mere citizens. Any financial aid that comes from them must be out of his own pocket. Not in my entire experience, however, did I meet a fellow counsel who could say that they had ever been able to convince an applicant of that fact. The applicant was, when he failed to receive as much as he thought he was entitled to, usually expressed his doubts as to the counsel's interest or sincerity or his honesty. Sometimes an outspoken individual would express his opinion about his country, declaring that he did not consider it worth a damn. And in this little paragraph, there's probably a whole history to be unveiled about these let's call them beachcombers who are abroad and you know probably a bit of a bum you know maybe not that interested in getting the job and considering it their right to take advantage of of the embassy 
to help them on their way if need be. And we really see Johnson's frustration with with these kinds of, of characters. Um, but back to his concern about promotion. Certainly a big concern of his is, is to what degree would race play into promotion or not. Um, but nevertheless, he does earn eventually a promotion. And that promotion may, means he had to move to Nicaragua where he, you know, he, he's going to continue his career. Meanwhile, he meets a young woman named Grace. Grace, what's her last name? Grace Nail was her name. And this is the woman that he would eventually marry. So we get the courtship that would lead to his, his marriage. Now, Grace Nail, well, thankfully, we don't hear that much about her after the marriage. Johnson sort of sidelines his wife in this account a little bit, um, unfortunately. Um, but we do know a little bit about her, just thanks to Wikipedia. She did not die until 1976, so she, she lived to be almost over 90. She lived to be 91 years old. Um, and she was a civil rights activist for much of her life, involved in the NAACP. In fact, her father was the first life member of the NAACP. Uh, her father was a developer. She was associated with the Harlem Renaissance. She knew Nella Larson. And interestingly, Nella Larson reports, well, because this is a Wikipedia, Nella Larson apparently with her past as white in, in a restaurant in Tennessee. So again, uh, sorry, there was a car, noisy car coming by. So Grace and Nella Larson, who a Harlem Renaissance writer who wrote a book about passing, right, actually pa tried to pass as whites and did successfully at a restaurant in Tennessee. It was, they, here it says it was a stunt, a trick. But I noticed that when I looked at her picture, which is, there's some pictures included. The same pictures that were in the original autobiography are in this Library of America version, just that she was really light-skinned. And, you know, I just just something to point out that he married a light-skinned woman. I don't know her background here. It just says, daughter of a real estate developer, John Bennett Nail, and his wife, France, Mary Frances Robinson. So I don't know if, if she inspired Nella Larson at all. Actually, it, no, it wouldn't have inspired Nella Larson's book because they did this passing stunt, quote-unquote stunt, in 1932. But anyways, someone to learn about, someone to know about not insignificant in, in, in American history. Okay, so that's chapter 23. Chapter 24, uh, we get their new diplomatic post in Nicaragua. Grace Nail, he eventually marries. I think he marries her in 1910. So she's gonna start to enter the story really in this part as a diplomatic wife. And we don't hear that much about her in the chapter part four of the novel, but she's here as the wife of a diplomat and meeting people and experiencing it. So he does give her some focus in this part of the book. Um, we got a, actually a few, a few interesting descriptions in this section too about these, these sea voyages. And, you know, I, I think with planes, we're, we're losing something. Yeah, I know people will go on boats for, for cruises and things. You know, but that's, that's seen as leisure, not for primary modes of travel. But, you know, in these days, in those old days, you know, when you wanted to travel, you took a train, which might take a week or two weeks to go across the country, you know, or if you had to cross, go to diff through different countries, it would take even longer, of course. Or you got to go by boat, which would, of course, also take weeks. So travel was a significant event in in one's life it wasn't just you get on a plane and you you take a nap and you wake up in the other side of the world after watching a few few uh, secondary market films um, so what i'm trying to get at here is that there's a there are experiences that we, we're not going to have right the meeting of people the interacting sometimes cross-class sometimes you know interracial or from different countries the kind of the intellectual experience one can have while on a boat, you know, writing while, you know, of course, Jack London had that voyage of the snark and that was a very influential moment in his life intellectually and creatively. And of course, fraught with psychological and personal problems during the time, but it did contribute to his creative life in, in many ways, you know, or just like imagine instead of 
flying across America, you, you take a train and you, and you spend three, four days of it on, on that train. You know, and while you're doing it, you pledge yourself to, to write poems or something. I mean, you, it's a time for you to do work and to reflect and not have the burdens of your everyday life around you. And I, you know, I kind of, when I was reading these passages where you talked about these long sea voyages he took, you know, I just kind of regretted that most most of us don't really get to have these experiences anymore because everything's so rushed, right? So it's it's maybe too bad. And maybe if we try to slow things down a little bit, maybe we can go back to this. You know, maybe if we end up a post-carbon time, maybe we'll be back to dirigibles and things like that. And we'll have to, or ships and sailing ships, and we'll have to take longer in our trips. One can hope. Like what? One thing he he learns poker on this trip to Nicaragua, for instance. We get some more commentary in this chapter about the nature of race in Latin America, which is always interesting, just because as African Americans, you know, they go to Europe. Often they'd have this experience when they went to Europe, and they not experience racism to the degree they experience in the United States. And many of them wanted to stay. Right? This was something you saw with James Baldwin. I know Sidney Bechet. The musician want, preferred France to America for this reason. Du Bois had this experience from time to time. Johnson reports it actually in part two of this book, how he had very different experiences of race when he went on these European tours. And Johnson's going to discover the same stuff in Latin America. Now, Latin America is interesting because they're also going to have legacies of slavery and and racism and you know worked out differently in the united states in different timelines for for emancipation in in latin america but there was the experience of slavery there and that led to the same diversity racial diversity across latin america but very different outcomes i guess is what i'm trying to say and these are outcomes that were experienced by people like johnson when they went and visited latin america so he here he's he, I think he's in Panama at the time. Yeah. So while quote while I was at the office of the Pacific Mail Steamship Company talking with my agent, I became aware of the presence of a dozen or more Negroes in the large counting room in the back of the outer office. Now Negroes were not a rare sight in Panama. They were almost as ubiquitous as they are now in Harlem. The spade work of the canal being done mainly by Negroes. So this was this was what I saw in the Pacific Mail office made no special demands on my attention until I gradually perceived that they were not doing work as janitors or laborers, but doing clerical work. I noticed that they were making entries in a big ledger and handling stacks of bills of landing and other shipping documents. I was particularly impressed at the nonchalant skill and the trick of making pen and pencil rakes of the ears. I could not refrain from asking the agents about them. He informed me that they were the best accountants and bookkeepers to be found in Panama, or he informed me that the best accountants and bookkeepers to be found in Panama were educated Jamaican Negroes. So a lot of little moments like that. He doesn't interpret this stuff. He, does, he doesn't feel the need to, I guess. It's just out there. But, you know, how race gets experienced in Latin America is something he's going to reflect on. It's something Grace, you know, we hear through Johnson's words that Grace also experienced. So we also, though, are reminded that we're in an imperial setting in Nicaragua. And that's the, the symbol of that is in these ports. And I think where he's staying in, in Nicaragua is Corinto that there's always these American ships in the ports. It's really gunboat gunboat diplomacy. And he's a part of that regime of gunboat diplomacy as consular officials. We got some more comment on the consular issues. He, consular, you know, kind of duties as an official he had to deal with, such as dead Americans, you know, people got in fights and got killed or something, and or people didn't have money, how these bodies got sent back. And so, again, if you're interested in just the day-to-day work of, of these officials, you got a little bit of it there. But the big news in this chapter must be the fact that the United States began backing a revolution against the government in Nicaragua around the same time that Johnson becomes an official there. Oh, but before I get to the Zelaya, who is the president of Nicaragua until 1909 when the United States decided they didn't want him to be president anymore and, and worked to overthrow him with using indigenous fighters and basically fomenting a revolution against the government. You know, he does comment in this chapter that he faced more racial prejudice from Americans who maybe came by to the consulate, you know. And there was a couple of actually issues where 
Americans in Nicaragua didn't want to deal with them. And then, you know, there was conflict over that. He was receiving more racist from them than he was from the, in the, the local uh, population. But anyways, to this. So the president of Nicaragua from 19, 1893 until 1909 was a man named Jose Santos Zelaya. And as I suggested, he was overthrown in 1909 um, by a U.S.-backed revolution. What history teaches us is that the reason for this was the Zelayan government's refusal to honor and be, their, his desire to begin to back out of certain loans that Nicaragua and other people in Nicaragua were given from U.S. and other foreign banks. So it was another example of straight-up gunboat diplom diplomacy in which the United States overthrew a government that resisted American commercial and economic interests in Latin America. It's a long and bloody and, and horrendous story that we've seen again and again throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century. And that's that's just this history. We don't have to kind of dwell in it too much. But it's significant that Johnson was a part of this as, you know, he's at, at the consulate while this stuff was going on. And he's having to come to terms with this and making decisions as a professional and as a civil, you know, someone who's going to become a civil rights activist anyway, someone who's very not entirely sympathetic with U.S. policy on these issues. So he's going to have to make a decision over, and it's going to be over the course of this crisis over the Zelayan government and its overthrown aftermath that's going to lead him to end up leaving the consular service and to leave the State Department altogether. Now, the first clue that he maybe wanted to be out of Nicaragua when the stuff was going on. Uh, maybe, maybe for political reasons, it's not really clear to me in my reading of this. But he does ask for leave of absence to go to Washington in 19, I think it's in 1909, while this insurrection against Zelaya is going on. And he goes there, really, and he ends up asking Grace Nail to marry him, and then he marries her. And Grace then comes back to Nicaragua later on as a diplomat's wife. But at that point, the immediate crisis has, has ended. And the way it ended was Zelaya essentially resigned. And it seems, from Johnson's point of view, that he did this to basically try to forestall the revolution. Because if he was the target of these, these, this revolutionary movement, if he kind of resigned to someone else who would kind of continue his regime, then that would die down the revolution would die down because it wouldn't have the same target so anyway Zelaya hands over rule to um, this other guy and he's able to hold things together for just a few months and then eventually the u.s backed revolutionaries win um, by that point johnson's back in nicaragua and and the person who takes over at that point is a man named juan b estrada and he's kind of the head of the liberal faction that was backed by the United States and became the official recognized government by the United States. He moved the capital and and whatever. So this was the, the American back coup, which well, I guess revolution it wasn't exactly a coup, but this was the American backed uprising that that led to regime change in, in Nicaragua. Sorry, I, I'm feeling I said Venezuela before, but no. It, yeah, this was this was in Nicaragua. Johnson gives a, a lot of comments in this chapter about Grace's role as a, as a diplomatic wife, which is interesting. And he also talks about black soldiers of fortune, which were peripheral to U.S. empire, but but kind of a part of it. And again, I there seems to be a history here, which I don't know much about. And, and but that could be unpacked a little bit. And here's what he writes. Quote, for a long while back, American soldiers of fortune had played parts in Central American history. In the time of which I'm writing, the two most famous were General Lee Christmas and General H.O. Jeffries. I never saw General Christmas, but one day after the latter part of March 1910, General Jeffries landed in Corinto and handed to me a letter of introduction written by the American consul in Panama. I was curious about this man because he had been one of the chief factors in the revolution that separated Panama from Colombia and made the Panama Canal possible. End quote. So yeah, these Americans are involved in in Central American history quite directly, kind of as as, as I don't know subcontractors of American imperialism, I suppose, all the way back to the Panama thing. And if you don't know, Panama comes from um, basically the U.S. government 
stole it away uh, from Colombia in order to create a, a government that they could dominate in order to establish the, the Panama Canal. So he hears news, uh, some personal news that Bob Cole, his collaborator with his brother and a lot of their musical um, projects back when in their 20s when he was spending a lot of time in New York, he died. And this is quite a traumatic moment for, for Johnson, the death of a, of a long-term friend and, and close ally of his brother. Um, he gets he, he gets another leave of absence and he spends that in Costa Rica, visiting some places he really liked. Um, he finally goes, they choose, he goes back to Nicaragua alone and Grace returns to the United States to spend time in, in New York. So that moment in which she was a, a diplomat's wife was, was rather short because she ends up spending, um, going back to, to New York. Now, in Chapter 26, we, what, we, what happens is, so th there's a couple presidents after Zelaya. The first was this guy, Estrada. He was only president for a few months. And then eventually it's handed over to this guy, Aldolfo Diaz. And, and he will be president for, I think, six years. And he's going to be really the president during a long period of American occupation in Nicaragua. And how did this come about? Well, it came about because... You know, their their regime was essentially this U.S. backed was created by U.S. backed uprising, and of course there was going to be a counter revolt against that, and it did come, and the United States then intervenes to protect this regime, which is pro-American, and so we start to get, um, and Johnson's there during this uprising against this new U.S. backed regime, and he's going to play actually a crucial role in helping to keep one town um, under the control of this new government. So he describes this all in chapter 26, which he actually was in charge of the surrender of a city, and he actually was able to delay it until American forces arrived. So it's kind of one of the more exciting moments in his, his career as a diplomat, in which he essentially, you know, held back uh, the rebels until until the cavalry in the form of the U.S. military arrived. At the same time, though, he does talk very honestly about why the United States is is intervening, and he thinks it it essentially comes down to to um, banking interests and and the desire of, of of U.S. financial interests. Now, I don't know if this is what he was thinking at the time, or if this was some. It's more likely something he a conclusion he came to by 1933 and wrote this down because he is going to meditate and think long and hard about about Haiti uh, later on um, after kind of confronting and facing the long U.S. occupation there and trying to understand why the United States was in in Haiti. And that's certainly going to affect how he looks back on these issues in, in Nicaragua. But here's basically the conclusion he comes to. Quote, on the surface, the reason for arms intervention of the United States in Nicaragua appeared to be based solely on the considerations of concessions and loans. Those who had opposed the imperialism of the United States in the Caribbean region have, for the most part, opposed it on those grounds. I am sure that the reasons go deeper, that they are based upon a policy of the government that had been running and growing stronger since 1826, a policy of government that has imparted tradition of the state and Navy departments. This policy held that the security of the United States depended upon controlling an interoceanic canal across Central America. For more than 50 years, the United States made tentative efforts at a Nicaragua canal down to the purchase of the unfinished Panama Canal. It was agreed that the Nicaragua route was the most practical and feasible for all. This policy of government now holds that even with the American ownership of the Panama Canal, the security of the United States still depends upon domination of the very possible route across Nicaragua. Only a year or so before the 1909 revolution, Zelaya was endeavoring to open secret negotiations with Japan for the acquisitions of the Nicaragua route. On and on. So it's it's about empire in his view. And, he, you know, he acknowledges banking interests as well. Um, but he, he thinks there's a deeper concern here also just kind of with power politics about securing American domination over these, these sea routes, oceanic sea routes. And... You know, there, there's probably something to that. Certainly, you have Mahan's book, you know, on the importance of sea power in history. That makes this case that major powers need to have, you know, these naval bases. 
So here we get some of his more open views on American foreign policy in, in Central America. And then we come to chapter 27. Uh, so this is um, a couple of things going on in this, this chapter. One is he finally publishes the autobiography of the ex-colored man. He celebrates the anniversary of emancipation and there's actually a little bit of a, a debate in his head and it's on the print. And I, I think this is still true to a degree. Do you, do you celebrate 1912? In that sense, you're celebrating the anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation being signed, or do you celebrate Juneteenth, uh, which would have been on 1915, the, the anniversary of the passage of the 13th Amendment. So it seems it wasn't even clear in his head which is the date you, you celebrate. So this is 1912, and he's talking about the anniversary of Emancipation. He writes a poem on this. This is a very famous poem called 50 Years, um, which we'll look at in a couple episodes from now. Now, why does Johnson end his diplomatic career? Well, I can't help but think that the experience in Nicaragua convinced him that he was he was in part an agent of, of empire, um, although he does justify it from time to time. I, I'm not sure how he entirely feels about it. It's hard when you're looking at oral biographies how much is constructed. He doesn't really make this book an anti-imperial polemic. He, he is going to write a whole essay. I think it's in The Nation magazine or in Harper's attacking empire in Haiti. So he does come to those views at one point. But, you know, it's hard to, to, to read this and get a clear idea of, of, of why he made these decisions. You could also make the case he, he makes decisions really out of professional frustration. So what happens is, is the Republicans are defeated in 1912 in that very exciting election that you learned about in, in, your, high, in your, you know, your college or high school history class in which you had uh, the Republicans nominating Taft, you had Wilson running as a Democrat, but then you also had Roosevelt throwing his hat back in the ring, running with the Progressive Party, and then you had uh, the socialist Eugene Debs, who I think that was the biggest year for him, where he had the largest numbers of votes of all the times he ran for president. So it was an exciting election, and but Taft was defeated, right? And the Democrats got into power. And this begins a process, which you described earlier in the book, of the ending of this black cabinet and the decrease in the number of black officials in the U.S. government. He also faces the death of his father, and he had to kind of get a leave to deal with his kind of the estate issues and, and deal with his his life back at home. And so the future of his work in the consulate is really debated. And um, so the new Secretary of State under Wilson is none other than um, William Jennings Bryan. Of course, he ran for president a few times. And he was he thought he would be get a promotion to serve where to the Orzes the or, or I'm not sure how to pronounce the Ozars Islands. These are Atlantic Island chain, right? So I think he's going there, and this was worked out by the Republicans and kind of passed on to Wilson's administration. They'd have to, of course, approve it. And when he gets news that he's going to be sent back to Nicaragua, that's when he decides to resign from the consular service. So the way he presents it in the book is that it was really more of a professional issue and a feeling he wasn't being treated fairly and that the Democrats were really interfering with, you know, what would have, was this kind of a standard earned promotion he should have gotten. So like too much politics in it and probably racial discrimination was a part of it as well. So that's why he resigns. Um, he didn't want to spend eight more years in Corinto, in Nicaragua anyways. So he he resigns and then he's kind of entered a new phase in his life. So what to do at this point? That, that we're gonna, that's going to be what's explored in part four, the final part of Along This Way. You know, the question is, does he go back to teaching? Does he kind of hook up with his brother again and get involved in art and music? Does he just pursue the literary career or what? And what we're going to find is that he does find a place for himself in the NAACP where he's able to have leadership positions and he's going to become much more of an activist in the last couple decades of his life. So that's what's going to be covered in part four. So I'm going to uh, refrain from saying any more until that point, until I... I prepare my notes and, and, and record my thoughts on the final part of Johnson's 
along this way. But anyways, a really great book. This part has so much great stuff just on the diplomatic service, on American empire, and we get a very intimate account of these events that I think most Americans aren't really aware of, or if they're aware of it, it's really an abstract sense, right? Like, yeah, the U.S. intervenes in Latin America all the time, but that, that these were actually things that happened to people and were experienced and were very traumatic for the people who lived through it. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting document on American imperialism in this, in this period of history. So I urge you to look at it for that reason. So anyways, leave your own comments around, about along this way if you're reading along with me. Please let me know if there's anything I missed or anything I misinterpreted in your view. Please um, don't hesitate to leave a comment or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'm probably wrong about a lot of this, so I would, you know, I'll, I'll take your advice and suggestions to heart. So again, thanks for listening and supporting this podcast and for reading along with me. I will be back next time with uh, my final part of Along, of along This Way. This won't, though, be the, the my end of my coverage of Johnson. We still have to look at his essays and some of his verse. So I'm really excited to look into that in the future, too. But for now, we'll look, we can look forward to the final part, the final 100 pages or so of, of Johnson's splendid autobiography. Thanks again for listening. Treading on path through the blood of the sun